This episode may include sensitive stories, topics, or themes that may be difficult to hear. Please take care of yourself and your well-being should something arise for you. Welcome to the latest episode of Punk Therapy, Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness. I'm Dr. T, working on my PhD. And I'm the Truth Fairy, coming to you from the underground. Together we hope to inspire integrity, courage, kindness, creativity and rigor in the fast-growing industry of psychedelic healing. Hello, hello, dear listeners. It is the Truth Fairy and Dr. T, and we have a very special anniversary edition to Punk Therapy. It is one year. Woo! Dr. T's uh, hooting in the background there. We have been together now for one year. It is February 15th, 2023, and one year ago we launched Punk Therapy and What a year it's been. It's gone so fast. We've had some incredible guests and some awesome conversations together, Dr. T. And I just want to let our fabulous listeners around the world know that by the time you hear this, we will have had over 5,000 all-time downloads. So thank you for that, everyone out there, for engaging with us and for listening to our podcast. And we have... We're going to have a conversation tonight, just Dr. T and I. We're going to keep it simple. Uh, but I'd like to start with a poem, uh, and it's by a, a Canadian uh, Ojibwe First Nations storyteller and writer, Richard Wagamies, who passed away in 2017. It's a beautiful prose poem about relationship. From our very first breath, We are in relationship with that indrawn draft of air. We become joined to everything that ever was, is, and ever will be. When we exhale, we forge that relationship by virtue of the act of living. Our breath commingles with all breath. And we are a part of everything. That's the simple fact of things. We are born into a state of relationship. And our ceremonies and rituals are guides to lead us deeper into that relationship with all things. Big lesson. Relationships never end. They just change. In believing that lies the freedom to carry compassion, empathy, love, kindness, and respect into and through whatever changes. We are made more by that practice. Dr. T, I see you closing your eyes and soaking it in. Mm, Hi there. Hi there, Truth Fairy. I love that. That's beautiful. I always... I was reminded of uh, this idea that I can't remember where I heard it, but 
whenever you're breathing, yes, on the one hand, you're breathing the atmosphere, you're breathing in the universe and breathing out the universe. And at the same time, the universe is breathing you, you know, like it flips. And then when you kind of connect with that way of seeing it, suddenly your sense of what you are becomes wider and connected with a wider sense of being. We've been together a year. Well, you and I have been talking for three years now, but it was only about a little over a year ago that we decided that we were going to bring our conversations and put them into a podcast. And then we started having guests, but I thought it'd be really great to do a one-year review and just see where you're at, what you've learned, what's on your mind these days. You're in the middle of your PhD. I just came back from some healing time. I've been told that people like listening to us talk. So I thought, why don't we talk for our first anniversary edition? (laughs) I don't know what we're saying, but... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Let's just go back to the OG. I mean, this whole thing started from us just chatting and then being like, hang on, these conversations are are fun. They're interesting. And maybe some other people might like to listen to what we have to say. So, yeah, why don't we start with you know, you had some questions that that you were interested to explore. And I know that, yeah, you've just recently come out of a healing journey, Mm -hmm. an ayahuasca journey. So I'm curious, Truth Fairy, how did you find yourself in an ayahuasca ceremony recently? And what what was that like? Well, let me backtrack for a minute. For those listeners that messaged me uh, about a disclosure I made when Sky Otter was with us, that I'd had a pretty rough year last year. And I didn't recognize that I was in the throes of complex post-traumatic stress. Like, oh, how do you know that when that's happening? (laughs) Yeah, there were some pretty dark times and there were times where I could barely tolerate what was happening in my nervous system inside of me. And I knew by the end of the year that I'd hit some sort of burnout. It was kind of a a combination of burnout and complex post-traumatic stress. And, you know, in retrospect, I've learned so much. I actually was saying to a friend of mine recently uh, who said, you know, they've learned more from psychedelics than any other route of healing. And I said, I've learned more from my complex post-traumatic stress than anything <laughs> recently. I've learned it from the inside out. I knew that sort of, you know, I'd worked with medicines. And at one point last year, I decided I actually had to stop working with any medicine because it was overstimulating. And I actually needed to stop and pause and just work with straight somatic therapists and let my nervous system calm down. And I I was still microdosing uh, LSD. But uh, at one point, I just knew the medicine called. And it's such an interesting calling because I hadn't worked with ayahuasca in about five years. I intentionally stopped it. I felt like, you know, it wasn't what was drawing me or calling me. Other medicines were like 5-MeO-DMT and ketamine were very interesting and 4-ACO-DMT. So, you know, when the Uh, This is part of what I want to talk about is that uh, how do we attune and tune in to that direct voice? Right now, there's a lot of different schools out there. You know, some people are really advocating for ketamine because you can do them, you know, you can do a healing journey with someone in a matter of hours. And some people are really advocating for psilocybin. And, you know, there's all these, and some people are really advocating for ayahuasca. And I really think that it's a multidisciplinary approach and that there's a different medicine for us at different times. And for whatever reason, I um, got a very clear sort of internal gut knowing that maybe ayahuasca was where I needed to go this time. And so I, you know, consulted a colleague of mine who's a curandera. And what I really 
love about this this medicine person is that we've been in training together. We were in Sharon Stanley's training together. And by the way, everybody, we're going to have Sharon Stanley coming to talk to us in a few months from now. We're so excited. But uh, we had both been in a a training with uh, Sharon Stanley. And it's so great because, I mean, this this colleague of mine calls herself a, a, doesn't call herself a shaman because that word right now has been so distorted. She calls herself a healer, but she has been trained, you know, in medicine in, in, in South America, in, in shamanism and uh, working with Aya. So I, I, I wrote to her and I said, I really need to work with you because you really, you, you've done Sharon's training. We've been in Sharon's training together and my nervous system is really shot now. I, I've had really old material come up from my childhood and it's, you know, woven into uh, burnout. So I, I, I really heeded the ethics of this that I needed to stop, really stop. And I took a very um, intentional three-week break, and I knew that that was going to be devoted to healing. And in the center of that three weeks was my two, two ayahuasca journeys, and it was just uh, my, myself and my husband and the shaman in a room. And I knew uh, very, it was very clear to me that I had already absorbed so much trauma from other people. And that's a real thing. I think Bessel van der Kolk spoke about that, that when he did MDMA, he had no idea how much he had absorbed from other people. He just had clueless about it. And I think that I had forgotten as well that working with trauma repeatedly week after week after week and, you know, my heart open and feeling other people's pain and grief and some horrible, horrific stories I th- my heart absorbed it and I didn't realize the weight of what I was carrying. So I was wait- carrying both my own and other people's. So when I, when I asked for this private ayahuasca ceremony, and I feel so fortunate that I could, I just needed to be in a room where I wasn't around other people's trauma. I needed to actually hear my own and, and the, in a very singular way. So, you know, there was a real preparation to it. And I, this is really, imp- I, I feel so fortunate that I was able to do this uh, because I don't, I'm not able to do it often, but I was able to actually clear three weeks so that the first week, my sole focus was dieta, like actually just dieta, not working. And for those that don't know what dieta is, it's um, an elimination of red meat, an elimination of pork, of salt and sugar and dairy and fermented foods. And uh, for some people, for caffeine and alcohol and recreational drugs. And in and of itself, it's such a healing medicine to be on a dieta. Um, I started it well in advance. I mean, some in some places, you have to be on a dieta for a month. So I was on a dieta for about two weeks, two and a half weeks beforehand. And there was just a lot of focus on, on yoga and resting and reading. I was actually reading The Ethics of Caring by Kyla Taylor. So I was doing a little bit of work there, and I knew just how important that was. But as we, as my husband and I um, got in the vehicle and we had to drive into the mountains, we had a seven and a half hour drive somewhere in a location in Canada and in the deep, deep, dark cold of winter, um, we were listening to Brene Brown's audiobook. I thought it was only me. And it's a book about her study of shame. And Part of me said, I don't want to listen to this right now. I've, I've, I think I've been chronically stuck in it for two years. I do not. And then something else said to me, no, I think it'd be a good idea if I spent about five hours listening to this instead of Scott Thompson, a Canadian gay com- uh, comedic actor who has some great stories himself. So I went for the shame. As I was listening, 
I couldn't help but start taking notes. I was taking lots and lots of notes. And it occurred to me that post complex post-traumatic stress is chronic heartbreak and chronic shame. Like, you know, this idea of self-attack and self-loathing and, and just out there for, for therapists, I just want to say, Hey, therapists, we fall into this and it's so easy to pretend that we're not there. And it's so easy to pretend that, or try to put up the front that we're strong and we're resourced. And like, how do you know when you're starting to crack? How do you know that you're starting, you're vicariously starting to uh, receive something that your client is working with that you also need to work with? Like, when do you see the signs? You know, how it's so easy just to kind of keep going some days and not recognize the signs. I know it is for me because I had to, I had to growing up as a, as a ballet dancer, not pay attention to what was hurting. So I found myself in that place and what a great learning right now. What an ethical learning. But as I was in the car listening to uh, Brene Brown's talk about shame, I thought, geez, that's, that's where I've been. And so I had all these ideas about, you know, early relational trauma, like the severe relational trauma under which I lived, you know, mental and, and, and emotional abuse. And I thought it still points to shame. It still does. And, you know, what's, what does shame need? It needs empathy and presence. So, of course, I had a long list of things and I thought, oh, this is going to be brutal. And I was actually scared. To be honest, I got, I got there and on the day of, I could feel this really nervous stomach. And I just want to say to everybody out there who's trying psychedelics for the first time or coming to a session and you feel nervous, thank goodness, that's your humility. I get more scared now than I did before. The more I do medicine, the more scared I get. And I was scared. And I, and, 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 and so the first day as I got to the medicine and I was talking to my colleague, the shaman, and I said to her, you know, I, and I talked to the medicine for days beforehand. I said, I can't handle anything brutal. I actually can't. I, it, my system cannot manage anything that's going to dysregulate me right now. So I had a very sincere conversation with the medicine and with my colleague who really got that what it is to be regulated as a shaman, what it is to be regulated in a room. And so we discussed the quantity I would drink. And that was just a small quantity to begin. I realized that I could have listed off a bunch of intentions and really what I wanted was to meet the shame with presence and empathy because that shame was leaving me in such a state of self-attack and self-loathing and self-criticism. There were so many strands that I can talk about through relationship and various uh, ruptures and ruptures that, you know, uh, as my therapist said to me, you know, you've, you've come by this honest, honestly, yeah, you, you were attacked as a child, you know, psychologically. So long story short, drank the medicine and I'm lying on the cushion in this very dark room and I'm scared. I'm thinking, what's it going to be? And I can just feel the, this kind of, this little buzz coming on, that little buzz of, oh, there's medicine. And as the medicine is coming on, I'm thinking to myself, like, what is that feeling? Like, what is that feeling? And there was like this, this sense of the complex post-traumatic stress, like the, the trauma in my system kind of leaving and being in a field outside of me. And, 
and I was just listening to the chanting. It's the first time that I actually paid attention to the chanting and really listening to how she was singing, what she was singing and the drumming. And at one point I'm lying, just, there's no visions whatsoever. And I've had very clearly said to the medicine, please show me presence for this shame. And I said, what's that feeling I'm having right now? And it was safety. And I went, oh my God, I'm an enveloped safety right now. And I said, that's all I want. That's all I need. I don't need anything else. So I just stayed with it. And I stayed with it like a meditation. And I said, thank you. I don't want anything else. I don't need anything else. There's nothing more than, than a felt sense of safety. And it was so beautiful. And, and she called me up to chant. And as I went up there, at one point, uh, the, the shaman was chanting and um, I got profoundly weak. I mean, it was like agony to try to sit up. I, mean, I literally, I just said, please let me go back and lie down and curl up. She was chanting, she's just, you know, trying to <laughs> open my, I'd been curled over. She says, okay, open your chest so I can chant to your chest. And there's an excruciating fatigue and weakness. I made, I made it through. And she says, oh, yes, I was clearing all that you had been holding for other people. And I went, oh, I was like, how, do I, how, did I, how did I forget? Like, how did I forget that that goes through my body? This is like, so I went back to my bed and there it was again. And nothing else happened. Uh, later, there was a curse that was cleared. But what was so deeply satisfying is I was so thankful that nothing really happened that I didn't have any great insights. I didn't see any visions. I wasn't going for anything. Just this simplicity of, thank you, I am safe. Two nights in a row like this, except the second night I had a very bad stomachache, excruciating stomachache, and then I coughed up a bunch of acid, a ball of acid. There was a curse that was cleared. I can talk about that later if it's necessary. But I just want to say to our listeners out there, we can chase visions, we can chase insight, we can chase knowing. But for us, for this special experience of feeling nothing happening except safety, I cannot trade that for anything. That's profound in the world today. And I've been feeling extraordinary ever since. And that's all that happened. That's all I wanted. Isn't that beautiful? I really like the way that you negotiated with the medicine. Mm -hmm. It's something that I think doesn't get suggested or recommended enough to people that you can have this little conversation, you know, and whether you, you're spiritual and you sort of see it as conversation with the medicine or, or really just a conversation with yourself, but you can approach the medicine and go, hey, please be gentle with me. Please, you know, I'm not ready for this big wild experience. You know, mm -hmm. obviously you need a, a, a shaman or a facilitator who can support you with that and dose yeah. you correctly with that because the dose does make a difference in how, you know, how provocative the experience is. So, mm -hmm. but you can, you can have that negotiation and, and ayahuasca doesn't have to be this like fully gnarly, purging, cathartic experience. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, I did purge several times. And when I purged, it just felt like, oh, an ease to it. And it was so wonderful to be received in my knowing by my colleague 
who didn't suggest, just gently met me there and trusted that I had done a lot of work to get to this negotiation, right? And not to be pushed because I've been dealing with developmental trauma my whole life. I've pushed myself for so long and it was a place not to be pushed or get pushed. And then to have this thing where I don't, I'm not in any need for anything. I'm not in want of anything. It felt so liberating. And I have felt so liberated since I've actually felt like myself. And that's what developmental trauma is, is that you don't feel like yourself. You feel like every iteration of yourself that you've had to create to maintain attachment or to be accepted or to belong. And there was none of that. And and when I, <laughs> two days later, when I was walking in this little, you know, town, I was just chuckling again. I was laughing again. I was, I was talking to strangers, having fantastic conversations. And I thought, where have I been? Right. And I could feel that spark of life come back inside me. Yes. I was actually, it's interesting you say that. I've just connected the dots because I did notice something about you when we first started chatting. You were just, uh, you know, you just feel vibrant. <laughs> the truth fairy would um, every now and then just pause, look at me and start giggling in the pre-session. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, you're happy today. Um, yeah. But it's not just today, it seems. This is something that's kind of emerged yeah. from this healing journey. What a profound yeah. thing. So what a profound simple, thing. just safety. So safety, just safety. We have a prof- Yourself. Yeah, to be yourself, right? And yeah, I was thinking of that. And, you know, as I came back, I thought, well, you know, what's the hurry to kind of cut, you know, stop the dieta? And I was really just staying with, okay, what if I just, you know, keep salt out of here for a little bit or sugar, just slowly add back, add things back and haven't had a drink for a month. Not that I'm a big drinker anyway, but um, there's, I, I really want to just speak to the ritual of holding our journeys to give time ahead of time, give time afterwards. You know, it, it spurred me to start doing cold plunges. Now I'm doing cold plunges, which I've never done in my life before. I've hated the idea. And all of a sudden I'm doing cold plunges. Like what's just happened to me? Truth so, is going full Wim Hof on us. <laughs> except for the breathing. <laughs> I'm not doing the breathing stuff, but full, half Wim Hof. I'm doing half Wim Hof. So... Yeah, I just wanted to advocate for, you know, the intentionality of setting, like, how do we set intention and how we create space for integration, you know? Mm, Yeah, yeah. That's a great question, something you wanted to explore Mm -hmm. today was this notion of intention. And you you said you've got something that you've learned for us. But I've just talked a lot, so... I'll go back to that. I want to hear from you now, Dr. T, because you matter to me. So why don't you talk a little bit and we'll come back to my thing. Okay, sure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a bit scatty this today as I've just come out, just emerged from a a five-day intensive training, which was incredible. So I just did a training to deliver uh, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression, quote-unquote. Uh, it's a clinical trial that, that I'm a part of with a group of about seven other therapists from which we're going to create about four co-therapy teams that are going to each, you know, deliver this this therapy um, to people over the course of the next year or maybe two years, depending on how things progress. So, yeah, that was um, 
that was an am- amazing experience. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful for the, the team that I'm part of and the trainer who taught us. It was just really beautiful and connective and the people there were, you know, gorgeous. And yeah, I learned a lot. She, the trainer took us through the, the process. This, you know, it is a clinical trial, so it's very protocolized, very rational and step-by-step and kind of linear. And that's just kind of how it has to be in order to control as many variables as possible so that we can say something has statistical significance at the end. Um, but yeah, we went through the, basically through the whole process from the preparation through to the integration. We did lots of like role plays, pretending to be therapists and clients. And that was a lot of fun. We did a, a full blown like holotropic kind of breath work on one of the days where we sat for each other in the morning and then we swapped and did the other for the afternoon as a kind of like checking out what the dosing might be like. And then, yeah, we went on to integration at the end. And there's something really interesting about this trial, which I'd love to kind of workshop with you, Truth Fairy, um, because this trial is not really looking to, uh, because every trial has to, you know, kind of investigate something new right and there are already clinical trials that have looked at the uh, use of psilocybin for treatment resistant depression right so this has to discover something new and so we actually don't have uh like a a placebo control group in this trial Mm -hmm. because we're not actually investigating how effective psilocybin is for depression purely what we're really looking at is we're comparing the efficacy of this this treatment when somebody goes through the psychotherapeutic process, the preparation, the dosing, the integration, and then another round of that preparation, dosing, integration, when they go through that by themselves or versus if they bring a significant other, that could be a family member, a close friend, a partner who comes along for part of that ride. And so they actually come into the clinic, this, this family member mm-hmm. or partner, for um, some of the integration and some of the preparation sessions and we include them in this person's journey so that they can ideally i guess be more supportive and more understanding of the process so we're kind of i guess in a way we're inviting that person into the container of healing around the the person who's going through the journey and so that's been really interesting especially for the role players. <laughs> we oh, had I a, bet. We had a couple <laughs> of members really get into the, the sort oh. of like the rescuing partner or the, oh, the yeah. really controlling partner that needs to know yeah. every detail. And yeah. <laughs> Did you have the partner that doesn't believe in psychedelics and what, what are they, why are they taking these drugs? We didn't. We didn't do that. Oh, oh my oh, God. Okay. And of course, of course we're going to get that. Well, yeah, maybe, I mean, I... I yeah. like to hope that the partner might, you know, the person who's going through it might not, you know, they might choose someone who, who doesn't, who is supportive of it. But you're, you're right. We may well get somebody who's quite skeptical of the whole process. Um, that would have been fun to workshop. <laughs> that might be, that might be fun to workshop. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it's been, it's been something that, you know, uh, we did a little, a little brainstorm just yesterday mm-hmm. about this and I was kind of yeah. asking the group you know, to, you know, I was curious about like, what is it that psilocybin does to your experience of relationship? And and this was, we were having a conversation particularly yes. about when that significant other was a partner. 
And, you know, when I reflect on, on medicines, if I think about ayahuasca, for example, for me, if there are any relationships in which that there are like ruptures that have not been repaired or mm-hmm. ways in which I, you know, anything, like if I've done something wrong, if they've done something wrong, if there's something that needs to be addressed emotionally in that dynamic, ayahuasca tends to bring that up for me and hmm. say, hey, this is something you need to pay attention to. This is something you need to do. I often come out of IO ceremonies with this kind of list of like, I need to call this person and this person and this person. Ah. And I need to have these, you know, real chats with people. Uh, it's interesting. I get that with ketamine. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but psilocybin doesn't tend to do that as much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, psilocybin tends to go a little bit more galactic more often, a little bit more like interconnected, you know, like I am. Oh, that's so I'm, interesting. Yeah. Well, so I just go like your... horribly dark places with psilocybin. It's, see, isn't it so unique? Like everyone's relationship. I just go dark. I like, I'm hating psilocybin these days. I just like, get me yeah. away from it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, my, my ongoing theory is that the psilocybin, because they're like underground subterranean creatures that are, you know, um, these webs of connection under the earth that they, they do, they like, and, and that their role is like, they use dying life forms as their fuel source to grow. And so they're like, they're deeply involved in the process of the cycle of life and death and mm-hmm. they're underground and they're highly connected and so you know i imagine that when we consume them we're getting a little glimpse into their reality and that can take us into the the underground the soil the mm-hmm. dark the death mm-hmm. the dying yeah. and the interconnection of everything and that's you know that's sort of how i you know how i interpret a lot of their teachings but it, it, i've never had an experience well, I shouldn't say never. I can't remember an experience of, yeah, of it bringing me into that relational dynamics and and um, about my my partnership and, and things yeah. like that. So, it tends to have a more I- inward rather than mm. relational way about it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's my thoughts. But it, it'll be interesting to pay you know very careful attention to this mm-hmm. through a, through a um, clinical trial and really. Um, have these conversations with the partners and find out what their experience of it is. So mm-hmm. I'm yeah. curious and I, I have to ask, you know me, I'm I'm such a I'm such a punk. <laughs> so terrible. But did you guys, did you have a conversation in your training or maybe I could a- brainstorm on this with you right now, but what what treatment is the depression resistant to? <laughs> <laughs> I well, know I'm so bad. Like I've got to ask. No, no, it's a, it's a great question because I think that I really, I, and I think a lot of people hate or dislike this, this term, treatment-resistant depression. And I reckon it's just, you know, it's the field of psychiatry kind of maybe consciously or unconsciously um, turning the uh, responsibility back on the client for, their, for, for them not getting better from the treatments that they've been provided. So yeah. somebody comes yeah. into the psychiatry office, they go, I've got depression. Psychiatry provides them with an antidepressant. And after three months, six months, ah. it just does not work. And then they come back and they try a different medication. Three months, six months, it just doesn't work. The person is still at the same place they were six months or a year before. And that's when 
they can get this kind of diagnosis of treatment-resistant depression. And I don't like it because, yeah, I think it kind of puts it on the client like they are somehow resistant to the treatment. Um, when well, actually, what if maybe the treatment just comes? Treatment is the problem. <laughs> well, exactly. Like treatment resistant, right? That treatment resistant depression, yeah. right? I'm depression, right? You know, just going through, you know, depression myself last year, a real shutdown. I mean, I was just reminded for myself, you know, um, maybe what I learned is when we are healing some very deep wounds that are deeply embedded in our neural circuitry. Uh, Like, for example, if you had a parent who was borderline or a parent who was bipolar or, or severely traumatized um, and our, and our parents went through fragmentation and they switched on us and one minute they were okay. And one minute they weren't okay. So that, that, that really messes with our own circuitry, the neurobiology of we, you know, we need a mind to grow a mind. When that happens and you find yourself maybe decades later overwhelmed and overworked and you've seen a lot of clients as a therapist and all of a sudden, boom, one day something triggers in, you know, maybe how a client looks at you or something a client says to you and then boom, the very thing, you know, your, your very work is being challenged or you've made a mistake and someone's shamed you for a mistake because people do that. People, this is what Brene Brown was talking about is that shame is happening every minute of every day of every year all the time. And people don't even know they're shaming each other. Like we don't, it's so built into the fabric of our culture, um, shaming culture that we don't even know we're doing each other to each other. So someone may have sh- shamed you and they they didn't even know they were doing it. And all of a sudden you're, you, you as a therapist, you're back, you know, maybe in, in an event with your parent and you're in now, all of a sudden you find yourself in a counter transference with a client because they're upset that you've made a mistake. And then you're upset with yourself that you've made a mistake. And then before you know it, you go, okay, well now I've become a, you know, you're feeling the pain of your past. You realize there's something you need to work with, but as you're working with it, and as I was working with it, I started to become a magnet for it because like you're dredging it up. You've had it in the shadows. You've brought it up. Now it's this energy and you're like, okay, I'm working with this energy and I'm vulnerable to working with this energy and I still need to make a living. So I got to work, but now this energy's in me and I'm working with it. But as you're working with it, you start to become a magnet to it, right? Because it's not in the shadows any longer. And then as you're working with it, it's, it's just the craziest thing. It shows up everywhere almost. There's a point to it. What, where were we? <laughs> just, the, oh, just that it's the, the shaming is everywhere. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So depression, this is it. Oh, so yeah, all okay. of a sudden you're like, okay, bad stuff's happening. And you're, you, know, you have good stuff happening and bad stuff happening at the same time. You may be like feeling like you're growing in some way, but then there's all these other indicators that your child consciousness is coming up and you're still interwoven and still tied into events of the past. And all of a sudden you go, oh my God, I can't handle another bad thing happening. So we shut down and we close it off. And we numb ourselves and go, I can't handle another bad thing coming in. But as we've closed off, we can't let any good stuff come in. And so that's where I'd gotten to where I couldn't actually feel the good stuff. I couldn't feel the love from my husband. I couldn't feel the love from my my team and my colleagues and, and clients because I f- feel love from them. I feel love for them, but I couldn't feel it anymore. And that was depression where I shut out all the bad stuff, the shame overtook, 
And I absolutely agree that chronic, like serious clinical depression is chronic shame. It's that sense that you do not belong. You, you are not worthy. There's something fundamentally flawed in you. You don't deserve to be in relationship. You don't even deserve to exist or be on the planet. And so I'm so curious, you know, where does the conversation around shame come in around treatment resistant depression? And, you know, we need to bring that conversation in. And where do psychedelics come into that? Because I'll tell you that mother ayahuasca like profoundly grateful. I am so grateful that both the shaman listened and I listened and the medicine listened. And I said, the only task I have here is to bring empathy and presence to this chronic shame that's been debilitating and affecting me physiologically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And then I saw that there was actually nothing fundamentally wrong with me. I just think bad stuff happened. You know, my parents were traumatized. I got traumatized. Bad stuff happened, intergenerational trauma. So, you know, I hope that in these conversations about, you know, psilocybin being for treatment resistant depression, that we have bigger conversations around shame. Yeah, I think it's so important. That's it's a really interesting point and something for us to consider in this trial. Because, yeah, it's something I notice when I work with people with depression so often. In fact, I think it's a 100% hit rate that when I start to get to know this person a lot more, I find that there is a very harsh, you know, inner voice that is that has essentially internalized that shame, you know, and is, you know, the person is often shaming themselves and, and constantly mm-hmm. in that, that self-deprecating space. And so there's this huge piece around self-love, empathy, presence for, for people who are suffering with depression. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because Brene Brown talks about how there's nothing, nothing good about shame that some researchers say that there's healthy shame and 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 unhealthy shame and Brene Brown says there is nothing healthy about shame it's all destructive it's all toxic right and I was just thinking about some ayahuasca purges like when we're purging toxic shame you know yeah I really like her distinction between guilt and shame guilt being a positive emotion and and shame being just really not being good in any way and I think it's it's tough because we live like you said we live in a culture that implicitly shames through the nature yeah. of our language even you know and this is something i learned through practicing nonviolent communication mm-hmm. i've realized all the ways in which the structure of our language is designed to sort of buy into this game this sort of unconscious game that we constantly play which is basically asking the question of who's right and who's wrong you know yeah. even hearing you talk before you said when i made a mistake with a client you know even that comment is it carries this implicit message that somebody is wrong and that somebody is right. And it's built yeah. into us from childhood, you know, oh, you've done the wrong thing. You've been yeah. a bad boy or a bad girl yeah, and totally. made a mistake rather than, you know, a more nuanced conversation uh, around feelings and needs and, and um, requests and consent and all of that, you know, all yeah. of the stuff of NVC. And so, yeah, it's that's something that I've I've been learning or unlearning, should I say, because for mm-hmm. me when I as I'm practicing NBC, what I'm realizing is that it's it's not a practice that sits to the side that's something that I use like a tool in my day-to-day life. Rather, it's kind of like a, a new program for my whole 
language where the yeah. whole language needs a little upgrade bloop, um, yeah. in order to remove the sort of implicit uh, violence that and uh, violence that we do to each other, which is primarily to subtly shame each other. That's right. All the That's time. right. Yeah. You know, I really, really love, uh, as I was reading Kyla Taylor's book, The Ethics of Caring, I was, I was really brought back to this fun- fundamental importance for therapists and psychedelic therapists to realize if, if we've made a misstep in any way, that the first thing we have to bring to ourselves is, is compassion, is empathy, and to know that our misstep came from a healing impulse. That is so brilliant to me that our misstep or, or, or setting an agenda accidentally or, you know, sometimes unconsciously, unconsciously harming someone by something we've said, like we're not conscious of it. That's why we're doing it. Right. But that it comes from a healing impulse. That's so interesting to me, right? Like even wanting something for a client, like you see someone and they're in despair and you want them to feel better. But that's the other thing that I've been really clearing and really thinking about. Uh, I did a course with NARM, the Neuroeffective Relational Model, and I really, really love it. Um, I love how it's come into my work because it's really about dropping any agenda and getting really curious, super curious about every moment every single moment and helping a client. The only agenda is really helping the client get to their agency and how, you know, whatever it is they want, even if it's tr- driven from trauma, let's say they want to go out and harm someone. Well, how would that, how would the felt sense of that be right now or to harm yourself? Like, and you help, is that what you really want? Like, what does that feel like? So when I spoke about intention setting earlier, I've been using some of the principles of NARM and the pillars of NARM to really get, help a client get clear on what they really want. Because that's a hard thing to get to. Oh, that's good. I like that. It's a really hard thing. We we are like, we like, you know, you you come up with an intention, intention, but it's coming from this really shallow, like really shallow place. And it's like, that's not what you really want, is it? And I would, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about that. Like, how do you probe how do you help somebody to dig beneath those layers a little bit to get to what is it that they really want from a exactly and and if you're used to foreclosing your autonomy foreclosing what you want foreclosing that you even have any needs that that even having needs you can't even have needs it's really extraordinary that the little the slippery little nature as soon as someone says this is what i want and then they rescind it or foreclose it because it was through foreclosing that need or their autonomy that they were able to maintain attachment, right? So it is really extraordinary because in sort of the last six or seven medicine sessions since I've been applying that in my work, I have noticed that clients have gotten really clear on what they want. And within the next, within the, like the first 10 minutes of their session, their medicine session, they're landing their intention. And I'm agog, seriously. I'm going, wow, this really works. It really works to help people get clear and get interested. Like as a therapist, really get curious and interested in how it's landing when they're saying it. You can hear in their tone of voice if it's not clear. You can hear, see it in their body language. You can see it in their eyes when that intention is not fully clear. And if you spend the time to really do that with them, not talk about you know, all the stuff that's going on in their life, but actually what's presenting right here, right now, and when they, how they're able to verbalize or not verbalize what they want to experience, 
then you can get super clear with a client. And then they're going into medicine and it's landing like that. I just snapped my finger. But that's what happened to me with the ayahuasca. I took time to get really clear. I, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And then the intention I had on the road totally changed as soon as I listened to Brene Brown's audiobook. And I went, it's shame. This whole thing has been about shame. My intention's so clear now. And I got it within the first like 20 minutes of being in the medicine and it was there. Yeah. That's that's wonderful. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you just can't you, you can't get there to what that deep the deeper desire is and and sometimes that's part of the journey. You set the intention from that yeah. that shallow place that didn't quite get at it yeah. and then within the first hour or two hours of the medicine, the medicine's kind of like, "Hey, look. Yeah. Look, buddy, that's sorry, but that's not what you really want. And and then it delivers you something yeah. else and, and you get to yeah. the end of it. And that, that's part of the learning is to, to realize that where you thought you were is not quite where you thought you were. And, yeah. and what you need yeah. is not quite what you thought you need. I know. It's so true. I was thinking about this. Uh, wonder, I'm just going to lean, lean away from my mic for a moment. Uh, I, I was thinking about, you know, what they define as self-agency. And of course, now I can't find it. <laughs> Now that I've leaned away, but uh, this idea that self-agency is this internal reaction in relationship to an external reality, right? So we have self-agency when we're able to have some choice over our internal reaction in the face of an external reality. That's where our choice lies. It's the pause. The pause, yeah. The, the sort of subtle a... pause before, you know, like there's the kind of automatic reaction that we have to anything and then there's the there's that pause where there's a little bit of space between your initial kind of automatic reaction and then how you actually respond. I guess that, that's that difference between reacting and yeah. and responding. It's the difference between child consciousness and adult consciousness is what they were talking about in the training. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. It's very interesting. It's a very quick way to... Mm, differentiate and say, hey, how am I, how, how is my perception right now? The perception of my child and the strategies I'm using actually came from my child consciousness, keeping me safe or keeping me in, uh, accepted, keeping me in connection, but it becomes false connection. I was thinking about another thing I wanted to bring up in this one year anniversary is this idea that allowing ourselves as therapists, I was thinking about the shadow again and ethics is that we are going to have negative thoughts. We are simply going to have them. We're going to, we might have a negative thought about a client. We might feel trepidation about a client. We might all of a sudden feel really great about a client and then all of a sudden have a little enactment with a client. We might have residual anger. Importance, how important is not to push that away. Of course, we, we want supervision. We want some therapy around it. But let's say you don't have a supervision session coming up yet or you can't get a session just yet. That idea that allowing thoughts to come in, allowing them to simply be there and not try to push them away or pretend they're not there or pretend that the fear isn't there, but to invite it in and invite it closer and get curious about its energy, you know? Yeah, to be a witness to the the transference without kind of getting totally caught up in the enactment and without rejecting what's happening. And and just getting curious with yourself, like wow, oh, wow, okay, I'm feeling I'm feeling a bit of resentment here, a bit of anger or something, and yeah, 
yeah. obviously trying your best to bracket that not bringing that into the into the dynamic um, yeah but but without a wholesale rejection of it because that in itself could you know ha- have its own effect in the therapeutic dynamic you know a client might get into that transference and then if you totally reject it then that could actually be the the exact reenactment of what happened that led to them feeling that that confused way yeah. in the first place and so you've just become um the the sort of dismissive parent or whatever it is if you if you reject totally. it without being able to be curious with it it's a very tricky finesse and you know it is a it is that kind of moment by moment finesse knowing that oh something's just come up for you and it's not about being you know an actor but noticing that something's come through you and what's that level of of intimate alliance that you have with a client where you can say oh i just noticed this thing come up in me and i need a pause so like you've got to kind of gauge that cuz some clients really like it when you do you when you are very transparent with them they learn better they they're they're cute they're sensing something's up and then with other clients you don't have that you don't have that uh secure atta- that that securely attached alliance yet you can't be that authentic yet with with certain clients right and then of course psychedelics totally blows it open in a whole other way right amplifies all of that sensitivity yeah. oh right oh god and and you know for this this trial that i'm working on we're working in co-therapy teams right with male uh-huh. female dyads and oh, yeah. so like you know daddy and mummy basically are going to be holding space for a person going through this experience where often transference is amplified and so you know that mm-hmm. that opportunity for those kinds of like um, dynamics is going to be through the roof, and I'm I'm imagining yeah. it's going to be something that I'm going to have to learn to be able to be curious with and witness without rejecting. You know, a client might they might, due to their own experiences with mum and dad, find themselves without consciously meaning to rejecting me and yeah. turning towards the other. That's and I right. have to I have to learn to not take that personally at all and be curious about it and be totally okay with it. You know, or not. Well, I guess not be totally okay with it, but to not confuse it and get caught up in the rejection of it, but to be curious, with, okay, what's what's going on here? Yeah, because if you're not clear with your own rejection, person? yeah. yeah. I, I'm yeah. sorry, I just talked right over you. No, 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 that's all right. Not make it, uh, I guess it's so important for me not to make it about me, yeah. what happens, whatever it is that arises to not make it about me and stay curious with you know, um, and, and bear witness to what it is that's happening in me, but without getting hung up on that and redirecting that focus to, to the client and their process. Yeah. And, and what you just said there is so important because if there is any part of you that is sensitive to rejection that has not been met in your own personal therapy, it's not going to be easy. Those are those are the times where the therapist has to leave the room in the psychedelic session, you know, and that's happened. People have had to do that because all of a sudden their stuff comes up. And that's why consistent therapy is so important for psychedelic therapists because in these sensitive environments, it's going to come up. Yeah, yeah. That's a great little suggestion. I should I should go and get a session to break down all of the ways that I might 
you know, find myself in a in a yeah. difficult position in that dynamic. Yeah. And just check, run some checks and balances around that. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of knowing your core issues, knowing what your core sensitivities are and know, knowing what your shame triggers are as well. So we're already already past the 40-minute mark. Is there anything else, Dr. T, that you're aching to say after a year of doing this together? I... I don't know that there is. I feel um, I feel really grateful for everything that we've done this last year and everything that we've done in, in the years before. Um, we've had some like really incredible conversations with beautiful humans, and I feel so thrilled to be part of this kind of culture, subculture of people riding that cusp of you know above ground, underground work, you know. Um, having, you know, I'm, I happen to be somebody who's just, who's working in the above ground. Um, but you know, (laughs) there was a funny episode of the Simpsons, I think recently, I, not that I watched the Simpsons, but I saw a meme about it. And I think Marge is, um, she's selling cannabis, um, legally and, you know, she opened a little dispensary and Homer realized that there was a market for people who still wanted that kind of underground, cool feel. And so he started an underground cannabis dispensary. And essentially they're both doing exactly the same thing. But oh, he's yeah, just yeah. chosen to do it underground because it's like cool and people, there's a market for that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I think those two are kind of having a dynamic around, you know, what are you doing? And, and I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a mirror of what's happening in the psychedelic field, you know, a lot of. Mm-hmm. We're, there's a lot of people on both sides of that fence that are doing quite similar work. And it is unfortunate that that the people who are doing the underground work with great integrity, that that is not considered legal in a lot of places around the world. Yeah, I just feel thrilled to be sitting on that on that cusp with all of these beautiful humans that are mm-hmm. operating in both of those places and we're all learning together and figuring out how to do this work with, with um, skill and care and yeah, yeah it's, it's just been such a learning experience so thank you, you. Truth Fairy for yeah, everything thank and oh, thank yeah. you I wanted to bring for, one for little listening. thing into it I yeah. want to bring one little thing in your opinion again I'm being a punk before we end here <laughs> what do you think about this uh, people are starting to call it the gold rush right now the trainings and the learning it yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that right now going on. You know, there's some trainings where there's, you know, 160 people sitting in ketamine together. You know, there's uh, there was a training in the United States, 400 people in a MAPS training at once. So I was just going to say, I read that MAPS um, intends to train 30, no, 25,000 MDMA-assisted psychotherapists by 2030. Huh. How big is that? Well, um, this is what I'm wondering about, right? It feels a bit like, a, you know, it's a, a gold rush, a bit of a, a factory pumping people out. So I'm just really curious about how this is all going to look in a while. Yeah. I, you know, I have, I really have no idea how it's going to look. 
I think that, like I said, that there are so many people in the underground who are working with such great integrity and who have been the keepers and the wisdom keepers of this culture and knowledge and skills. And I, my hope is that those people are able to, as this comes into the light and into something that's accepted, that those people are brought into the center of that and celebrated for what they've been doing and that we don't kind of go down that route of, oh, well, this is only for clinical psychologists with a, you know, this and this and very strict parameters around it because I think the nature of psychedelics is that they're coming in from from underneath and they are helping us to move into a new paradigm of healing which is not outcome and agenda-based and I'm the expert and I'm going to tell you how to fix your life which is about, you know, a philosophy of honour and care and service to the human being that sits before you. And so I really hope that psychedelics are, you know, right now we're all kind of like sitting in this and not sure where it's going to go, but I guess I hope that ultimately psychedelics are disruptors of the system and that that from that emerges a new system, something which looks different and still has you know all of the wonderful skills and knowledge of the above ground clinical protocols because the, there is you know there is something really valuable about that and that's something that I'm um experiencing in this clinical trial is that that there is you know there's such a level of detail and care and process to this that ri- you know there's such rich learning from that and then equally there's such rich learning from the artistry and the the shamanic models of doing this more kind of earthy and and raw and messy and you know and so i hope that we can bring these worlds together uh, and create a new paradigm of healing that's just way more um effective and and uh loving and, and fun and and deep and yeah do you have do you have something that's bubbling through something you want to say no i i, I think we're at that uh, that time to sign off for now. And we've got a really cool guest for our next episode in March. I'm really excited about that. We've got Sharon Stanley coming as well. And we've got a really wonderful trans woman that's going to be talking about accessibility and psychedelics. And then we've got a really awesome human being from the Synthesis Institute that's going to be joining us. So yeah, we've got a rich year ahead of us and I can't wait. Congrats to us. One year. Yes. Yeah. One year. One year. And yeah. uh, if you're interested in any boutique training, I'm. I've got some cohorts happening. Just uh, email and find out about it. Nine people in a training. These are small ones. For me, my philosophy is I really want to know who I'm training and I want to have a relationship with them. So there's so many different ways that we can go about it right now. Lots of yeah. options. And have a great time with the rest of your training. I can't wait to hear more about it. You seem really excited about it. Ciao for now, everybody. Lots of love from down under. Ciao. Lots of love. Lots of love from the north, the great white north. That concludes this episode. We hope you found it meaningful and integrative. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify 
and kindly share the link with your friends and colleagues. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at info at punktherapy.com. And remember to punk your inner wisdom. <laughs>